Welcome to The Truth Reveal, where we're breaking the chains of mental slavery by giving you the solution to every problem, which is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I'm your host, Sean Way, and I thank you so much for returning for another episode of Truth Revealed. I'm coming to show you today a commercial given by one of the most rich, well, he is the richest man in the world, Elon Musk. I want to show you about his company, Neuralink and how it works. I want to give you a, a clip of the commercial that they ran um, back in 2020, back in September 2020, and it lets you know all about their company. Take a listen. One day, you could have superhuman vision. Play your favorite albums in your head and download your brain to a computer or even to another body. Though this may sound like an episode of your favorite science fiction show, Elon Musk and his team at the neural tech startup Neuralink believe that their electronic brain-computer interfaces could make this possible. Described as Fitbit in your skull with tiny wires. A Fitbit in your skull with tiny wires. The small, easy-to-install brain-computer interface could be used to expand the capabilities of humans, changing the way we interact with technology and treat neural and mobility issues. Yet the goals of the company speaks to a potential problem in the future, artificial intelligence. Musk has been very vocal about his fear of artificial intelligence, believing AI could one day overshadow the human race. Musk's inevitable transhumanist goal of augmenting intelligence and abilities may be necessary if we are to compete with advanced artificial intelligence. However, Neuralink's team still has a long way to go before the emergence of AI-human hybrids. The tech company still has a lot of bureaucratic, ethical, and technological hurdles to cross. If Musk's companies accomplish half of what they claim, we could see the emergence of one of the most significant technologies in human history. But how does it work? Simply put, Neuralink is a technology that can help humans interact with machines using their brains. The company's eventual aim is to further develop brain-computer interfaces to the point where one can be installed in a doctor's office. Let's say you opted in to go in for a Neuralink procedure. What would that look like? Neuralink wants to make the installation of your brain-computer interface painless and quick, as easy as LASIK surgery. The design has changed significantly and now resembles a small coin around 8 millimeters in diameter, which houses electrodes that are about 1 20th the thickness of a strand of hair. To install the Neuralink, a tiny piece of skull is removed and the Neuralink is slotted in to sit flush with the skull. Since this process needs to be extremely precise, the Neuralink team has created a robot specifically for this procedure. The entire process could take less than an hour while you are under partial anesthesia. Installing the device will only leave a tiny scar and include all the sensors one would expect in a smartwatch. Once installed, the device will be able to send and receive electrical signals through your brain and use these to control machines. In its early stages, it could allow control of basic devices like a computer and other smart devices. But how? 
Your brain sends information to different parts of your body using neurons. Neurons in your brain connect with each other to form a network and communicate using chemical signals called neurotransmitters. This reaction generates an electric field. By placing electrodes nearby, you can record these reactions. The electrodes translate these signals into an algorithm that a computer can read. Down the road, Elon Musk claims that the device could be used to operate robots, cure paralysis, treat mental illness, to stream music directly into the wearer's brain, and extend the range of hearing beyond normal frequencies. Just like Neo in The Matrix, you would be able to download skills into your brain. You could even possibly summon your Tesla telepathically. In 2020, Neuralink demonstrated the device installation in a pig. The wildly anticipated demo showed that a living animal can function normally after having one implanted and then removed. Musk has announced that Neuralink received breakthrough device designation from the FDA in July 2020. This is a major step towards eventually mass-producing Neuralink devices. Who knows? Maybe Neuralink will allow us to achieve a symbiosis with artificial intelligence. Would Link implant? Would you get a Neuralink implant? And there you have it. The richest man in the world creating something, a microchip to go into the brain so that we can now be one with artificial intelligence what did Christ say in Matthew 24 for many shall come in my name saying I am Christ and shall deceive many what did Christ do he healed set free and delivered demonic possessions he cast out demons maimed people he gave them back their limbs blind people they received their sight deaf people heard again Dumb people spoke. Neuralink claims all of these same things as Christ. People that had paralysis walked. Neuralink's claim to do the same thing. I am Christ and shall deceive many. For many shall come in my name. See, they ain't coming in the name of Jesus. They're coming in the name of Christ, who was the anointed one of God. They do what he did. But they're deceiving many. They're deceiving you. Uh, he said about the rumors of wars. And you should see these things. But you shouldn't be troubled by them. Jesus told us. We see the war in Russia and Ukraine right now. We see all of these mounting wars. That U.S. may be sticking their nose in it. To maybe start a war with Russia themselves. All of these things are happening right before our eyes. But Jesus told us the end is not yet. All these things must, must come to pass. He said that nations shall rise against nation, nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. There should be famines, pestilence, earthquakes in diverse places. He said all of these things. And what do you see? California, magnitudes are eight point something. Richter scale. You got volcanoes erupting all over the world. Destroyed a whole island over there in, in, in uh, Spain. Lava in the streets taking over people's property. Lava! Hot lava, not no tsunami. Lava! P 
pestilence is everywhere, famine in these countries, right here in America now. We got famine and pestilence in America. Joe Biden has opened these borders and now we got so much stuff that's going on. These people are bringing in all of these diseases and pestilence and, and, and the, 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 the food shortages and the, the supply chains. Jesus spoke about it all. But he said the end is not yet. He said many, these are the beginnings of the sorrows. All of these things are the beginning. These are birth pains that are happening. And here you see the richest man in the world saying, come to us. Get this computer in, 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 in installed in your brain so that you can be healed of your infirmities. So I just wanted to bring it about for folks to see it for themselves, to hear it for themselves, and to see what these, 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 these are mad scientists operating on guinea pigs. People don't understand. These are these people are wicked. This is total wickedness. You changing the image of God into that of four-footed beast and birds and creeping things. The Bible says in Romans, changing the image of the Almighty into that which is birds, four-footed beasts and creatures that crawl upon the ground. He used the test study in a pig. And everybody was saying that the vaccine was, 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 was tainted with pig DNA. That's why it's the mark of the beast. It's beast DNA that's supposedly being in there, allegedly. That's what people are saying, right? So if you're being injected with beast DNA, that would taint you because you're no longer a human anymore. You're a hybrid. You're, you're a, 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 a something that has been created from this new world order. Something that is new. It's not nothing. Remember? <laughs> that, that's, that, that was revelations to me just now. But beast DNA, remember, because everybody was saying it was pig DNA, and they first of all they was talking about it was fetuses in there, baby fetus embryo inside the vaccine, which I don't, I can't allegedly, but I remember them saying it. It was from these Catholics and all of these priests and everything. They were talking about uh, that it was beast DNA that they were injecting on the people. You know what I'm saying? Well, not beast DNA, the fetus. I'm sorry. I used that my own self. I said it was beast DNA because that's the mark of the beast because, you know, if you, they put beast DNA in there, which is pig DNA, because remember that they, they just came out with a, a, a heart transplant by a, a pig that was grown, a, a human heart was grown in a pig and a man needed a heart transplant. So he was the first who to receive a pig's heart and put into him because they, they spliced these genes and, and made a human heart within this pig and they successfully transferred the, the, the remains of the pig into this guy who needed that um, operation. Um, I, matter of fact, let me just put that so you will see what I'm saying. And, and so that now he's, he has a pig heart in him. I mean, it was supposed to have been a human heart, but you know if it grows in a pig, it's links with the pig DNA. You understand? And they placed it in the man and it was a, a successful uh, um, um, surgery and everything. And it works. So I don't I haven't heard anything about, you know, what how he's doing and everything uh, as of lately, because this was uh, I think it was last year that this happened. But um, I'll let you hear the, the, the clip and, and then we'll move on. He simply didn't want to die. 
doesn't want to die. He felt that if he had no opportunity, and he was pretty well convinced by multiple doctors who had told him he had a fatal disease and he was unlikely to leave the hospital because of it. As an alternative, he, he said to me two very important things. He said, I don't want to die. And he said, if I do, maybe you'll learn something to help others. He's awake, he is uh, recovering and speaking to his caregivers, and um, we hope uh, that uh, the recovery that he is having now will continue. We've never done this in a human, and I, I like to think that um, uh, we, we have given him a better option than what continuing his therapy would have been, but whether it's a day, week, month, year, I don't know. What everybody wants, right, is not to be limited simply by the supply of human organs for transplant. And, uh, you know, a number of the organs can be treated, uh, you know, and used uh, in this way um, from a, an animal and can be commercialized basically as a, as a drug, right? And in essence, on-demand delivery, right? You would have it delivered, removed, and delivered. If that's true, we will obviously change the face of what's possible for people who now wait years for a heart transplant. You're looking at a medical first, a revolutionary transplant of a pig's heart into a person. We didn't know what the outcome might be, but it wasn't going to be worse than traditional therapy. 57-year-old David Bennett had no other option. Diagnosed with terminal heart disease, he was too sick to be eligible for a human donation. With less than six months to live, doctors in Baltimore offered him a medical leap of faith. It was very difficult for him to make this decision, but at the end of the day, this was his best hope of getting out of the hospital and having somewhat of a normal quality of life. The transplant involved a heart from a genetically modified pig with some of its own genes deleted and human genes added to reduce the risk of rejection. We wouldn't give him a worse outcome. And we had a chance perhaps of uh, striking the good one. He himself said, I want to live. And if I don't, you'll learn something. Three days after surgery, the heart is still beating. Bennett is alive. Transplantation has always uh, uh, been conducted in the context of an organ shortage. Dr. David Clausen works with UNOS, which coordinates organ sharing in the U.S. If proven, xenotransplantation could ease the critical shortage of donors. It is an important step, uh, but it still is only a first step, and there will be, you know, uh, a long journey ahead, you know, to see this through. Animal to human transplants have been tried before: chimpanzee kidneys, a baboon heart none successful for more than a few months. Pig organs show more promise. Heart valves from pigs are already widely used. In fact, Bennett received one of those more than a decade before his heart transplant. He realizes um, the magnitude of what was done um, and he real realizes the importance of it. One man's decision to risk it all has offered hope to thousands that life-saving transplants might one day not involve a life or death wait. There you have it, a genetically altered pig's heart was transplanted into the recipient of David Bennett um, Sr., um, who passed away um, this year, 2022, 
uh, from getting that transplanted heart um, from the, the, the pig, the genetically engineered pig who they uh, genetically engineered in a lab and added human DNA to it. And uh, they put it in him and he lived for a little while and um, he's passed on now. And what does that tell you? Hybrid. Hybrid. Do you believe that the image of God is being tainted when you blend humans with animals? God never intended that to happen. And this is what they're doing. This is what they did in the the, 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 the days of Noah. Read in the book of Jasher what they were doing, splicing genes, adding animals to humans. This was why when in the Genesis chapter 6, God said the animals were corrupt as well. All flesh was corrupt. All flesh, everything was corrupt. And this is what I'm saying. If you decide to put animals within your body, you are no longer God's creation. You are no longer God's creation because he didn't make you with an animal when he created you. He created the animals first and then he created his greatest creation of all, which was mankind, us after that. He didn't create you to become part of the animal. He created you to take dominion over the animals. He didn't create you to have this uh, genetically altered animal placed in you because you didn't follow the rules and regulations and orders by how he told Adam to eat the plants of the field for meat, to have those things for meat. So God showed you the diet, the, the lifestyle that you're supposed to have to create yourself to live forever. Because it was really, uh, we were to live forever before the fall of man. And he gave all of the instructions for food. And it was the plants of the field for meats in Genesis chapter 1. He, he provided the plants of the field for meat. Not the animals for meat. That all came after the flood. But God made a covenant with all the animals and Noah after the flood. So I'm telling folks, if you're putting things in your body that is of animals and genetically altered things that, that man has made, you're tainting the image of God. What his true creation was, a human being after the likeness and the image of himself. And that's us. You understand? Let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the birds of the air, over the fowl, the, 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 the sea creatures and the, the field and the, uh, the land animals. Dominion, responsibility. But what, what, how is we, what, what have we done with our responsibility? We've turned it into to, to wickedness. We've turned it into all of these things and people might don't believe but I guarantee that God visited this David Bennett Sr. before he got this operation. I know for a fact that God visited him and said, don't go on with this. Because he did that with the lady who started CRISPR. Remember uh, the lady by the name of Jennifer Doudna? Um, she, she told a story about um, when... She had a dream, an awful dream, the night before she was supposed to give her, because uh, she won the Nobel Prize for this CRISPR, this um, uh, genetically altered way of doing things now. And she said that, matter of fact, let me let you, let, let her say it. Hold on one second. 
Are designer babies with enhanced intelligence or strength just around the corner? The simple answer is no. The technology that makes this important conversation possible is called CRISPR, a revolutionary gene editing tool that allows uh, scientists to make precise changes to the DNA in any cell or organism. So fairly early on in the development of the CRISPR technology, I had a dream in which a scientist was introducing me to a man in a, in a dark room, and when that man turned around, it was Adolf Hitler asking me to describe to him how the CRISPR technology worked and tell him how it could be useful. And uh, I woke up from that dream with a, a real start, and that was one of the things that motivated me to begin discussing publicly the implications. At the same time, over the last few years, I've come to feel that the greatest problem may be fear itself. I think that it's very important to understand that the CRISPR technology has the potential to do many beneficial things for society, and to reject that technology because we are uncertain about the way it may be used in the future, I think would be a, a mistake. The CRISPR technology is based on a bacterial immune system that allows bacteria to fight viral infection. How do they do this? They actually use a programmable enzyme called Cas9 that can be programmed with little bits of RNA. These are little copies of DNA sequences that allow the Cas9 protein to find a piece of DNA inside of a cell and cut it. And when that cleavage occurs in the DNA, cells take over, repair the break, and in the process, introduce a change to the DNA precisely at that place in the genome. One of the reasons scientists are so excited about the CRISPR technology is that it can be used to correct mutations that cause genetic disease like cystic fibrosis or Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Gene editing can also be used in the germline. That means in eggs or sperm or embryos. And when changes are made to DNA in those cells, the trait can be passed on to all of their future descendants. So it gives us now uh, the power to change the very nature of what makes us human. In reality, it's not going to be possible to design a human being. We're, we're too complicated, and there are too many unknowns about the human genome. But I do think that in the not-distant future, we will correct disease-causing mutations. Given that this future for humankind is near, how do we prepare for it? Here are a few of the most important questions that we all need to debate. Number one, safety. We need to ensure the safety of gene editing, especially if it were to be used in human embryos. Number two, prioritization. We should limit the use of CRISPR-based gene editing in embryos to cases where there's no alternative. Number three, access. This technology should not only be available to the wealthy, it should be available to everyone. And how do we ensure that that happens? I think that's a very important discussion to be having right now. Number four, engagement. It's incredibly important that citizens everywhere have a, a voice in deciding how to use powerful technologies like CRISPR. It's important to understand that CRISPR gene editing is useful in many areas 
of biology and technology. I'm most excited right now about the ability to generate plants that are resistant to climate change and perhaps have better nutritional value has huge implications for human health globally. And I think that's one of the areas where the CRISPR technology may have the most immediate impact. And that was Jennifer Doudna, Nobel Peace Prize winner for her uh, explanation, not only, well, for the CRISPR-Cas9, um, but this is, that was her explanation of CRISPR, spelled C-R-I-S-P-R, in the Cas9, C-A-S number nine. Count all of those numbers with the number nine, and you'll see the 666 involved, but that's just another uh, understanding that I've gotten from doing my own due diligence and study because she spoke in the beginning of her talk was she was visited in a dream by Adolf Hitler. That's what she said. And he told her to explain CRISPR and to see how it can be used, how it can be beneficial to the world. Adolf Hitler visited her in a dream. And I told you, God sent that dream. But she said another, it was a, another video that I watched of her because I was doing my research on Jennifer Doudna before she won the Nobel Peace Prize because I, I had, uh, back then I was doing a whole lot of inf uh, uh, research on uh, gene editing and all of the stuff that was coming up back in, I think I started researching that back in 2019 and because they were coming out with um, the, the Neuralinks and all of those other type of things where they were talking about the computer chips and back over in Sweden, it was really real big as far as them inserting the microchips in the hands. Remember they was talking about um, it had all of their banking information and all of their uh, information. And remember they were really pushing towards the, the microchip as far as they were saying that that was the mark of the beast and everybody was. So I did a whole lot of research on that and I ran across her and I was watching one of her interviews that she had. And um, she had it went into more detail than the, the video that I just I mean, the audio that I just uh, presented to you about the dreams that she was having over these uh, courses of the night. And she was talking about how they were bad dreams and it was always something worse and worse and worse. And it was right before she was supposed to announce this new CRISPR Cas9 um, sequencing this gene editing tool. And, and God was coming to her and showing her, don't do this. Cause she said it on the, I'm gonna, I'm, let me see if I can find it real fast. So y'all can understand that I was, I was really, I really wanted to find that point, but I didn't see it nowhere went before I had uh, made the um, audio of her speaking, but she did talk about the dream that she had with Adolf Hitler. And that was one of the points that I really wanted to make that you were, if, if you are visited in the dream by Adolf Hitler, it's nothing good. <laughs> I'm telling you, if you are visited in the dream by Adolf Hitler, it's nothing good for that dream. That dream is a warning dream. All right. Adolf Hitler ain't doing nothing that's good. That's godly. He destroyed a whole lot of people. That's what his whole thing was, destruction. He was trying to keep, keep one race that was supposed to be pure. You know, he wasn't worried about Negroes. Listen, do your research on Adolf Hitler and you'll see what I'm talking about. But nothing has come good by you having a dream about Adolf. But let me, hold on one second. And just for a side note, the, the next thing that I'm going to let you hear about Jennifer these these interviews and these uh, the stuff that I'm, I'm presenting, these were all done before the pandemic. 
Okay, so listen to be very mindful of what they're saying in here. It's going to be a while because it's I want you to hear everything so you'll understand the way that these uh, the mRNA messenger vaccine has been implemented and listen to what she says and know for sure beloved that all of these uh the information that i'm giving you about this lady this was all done before COVID 19 before the 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 virus hit the world now listen introduced to you a scientist who has contributed to one of the most significant discoveries in the history of biology. Professor of chemistry and of molecular and cell biology at the University of California at Berkeley. The recipient of numerous prizes, including last year, the Kavli Prize in Nanoscience. Please welcome Jennifer Doudna. So welcome. Thank you. So Let's start with the question from the end of the film. So how do we figure out how to use this technology wisely and who actually gets to make those decisions? Well, I think it certainly starts with venues like this, honestly, where we uh, talk about it, we describe what the science is, what it means, where it's going, and we invite participation from all of us who will be affected by it in the future. And so as we go forward, is that the scientific community? Is it politicians? Is it, is it global groups? How are we going to decide technology and guidance of it? Well, I think it's all of the above. I, I favor uh, the work of the World Health Organization and the National Academies of Science right now that have put together international groups to look into the technology and make recommendations. But I think we may also need a group such as the UN to get involved as well. The United Nations. She said the UN, and I just made an audio on that. So go back and listen to that, and let me continue. That obviously requires knowledge and understanding the technology and really the basic fundamentals of it. So let's start with that. So tell us about it. Well, uh, I have right here a 3D printed model of a molecule. This is a protein. The white part of this is a protein called CRISPR-Cas9. And it's a molecular scalpel. It's literally a tool that scientists can use to cut DNA and trigger targeted changes to genomes. And the way it works is that it has another molecule in it called RNA, this orange piece, that provides a script. It's a set of letters that match the DNA code in a genome. And when that match occurs, this protein is able to make a cut in the DNA, and that triggers the cell to make a change at that precise position in out of all of the the dna inside the cell so this process even though you and your collaborator emmanuel charpentier were the were the discoverers of it in the modern sense i mean it evolved so it actually existed in bacteria that's right it evolved over over eons in microbes because of the need to use it to protect themselves from viruses so in in bacteria this protein is programmed to find and destroy viral dna but when Emmanuel Charpentier and I did research to understand how that works, we recognized that this tool could be, this, uh, this uh, ability of the protein could be harnessed as a technology for genome editing and other kinds of cells. So the technology, as everybody now knows, is, is CRISPR. So what, what actually is CRISPR? What does that stand for? Clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats. Whew! <laughs> Don't make me say it again. <laughs> I promise. So, so, what, so, 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 what does that mean? The palindromic part of it means what? 
Well, the palindromic part of it is the, uh, is the repetitive elements. And the way this part of DNA in bacteria was first recognized was actually by a Japanese group in 1987. They didn't know what it did, but it was distinctive because it had these repeated sequences that flanked uh, other DNA sequences that were at the time of unknown origin. And later in the mid-2000s, three different research groups that were studying these figured out that these uh, sections of DNA with, between the palindromes were actually coming from viruses. And so these CRISPR elements are in fact um, a molecular vaccination card for bacteria. It's a way that bacteria can store pieces of DNA from viruses that have infected them over time. So that's at least two points for Jeopardy or Trivial Pursuit, CRISPR and palindrome. Woohoo! <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so, uh, so, but people have been manipulating genes for a very long time, yeah. right? So we have a brief film talking about that as well as how CRISPR really has changed the game. Humans have been engineering genes for centuries. The vegetables in a modern supermarket and the staple grains that sustain us bear little resemblance to the ancient plants they derive from. Our domestic animals, too, have been transformed through generations of breeding. The variety of dogs is a testament to our power, long before modern biology, to transform genes. Beginning in the 1970s, we learned to directly manipulate the genetic code stored in the cells of every living thing. But for decades, the technology remained cumbersome, expensive, and imprecise. Then came CRISPR. In 2012, Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna discovered they could hijack a mechanism that bacteria use to protect themselves from viruses. With a piece of RNA acting as a guide and a protein called Cas9 acting as the scissors, scientists can now target, remove, and replace any stretch of the double-stranded DNA molecule in any living thing. Easy, quick, inexpensive, and so precise, scientists can switch out a single base pair in the more than three billion base pairs that make up the human genome. So let's move now to why there's so much excitement about this technology, as well as, frankly speaking, why there's a little bit of trepidation. So some of the things that it can do, and also, in your opinion, some of the things that maybe it can't do. So uh, starting off, food. So how can CRISPR help the worldwide food chain? Imagine being able to make changes to the uh, DNA of plants that introduce traits that can protect them from drought, um, protect them from infection by pests, make them potentially more nutritious. In the past, these kinds of traits would have had to be introduced by random mutations to seeds and then many years of selection for plants that have desired traits, often bringing along undesired properties along with them, and then uh, going through the whole process of, of getting getting that plant to uh, into a, a market where it could be useful. Now with CRISPR, there's the opportunity to make targeted changes to the DNA, only manipulating genes that have uh, the power to control the traits that we're interested in, in changing, and doing it much faster. So, obviously, great agricultural potential benefits. Uh, maybe not in Berkeley, but once in a while in New York, you still find somebody who eats meat or fish. Uh, are animals, fish, are those populations potentially advantaged? Absolutely. 
Yeah, yeah. Same kind of manipulations happening in animals that are used agriculturally as well, making hornless cattle, for example, uh, and other other ways of protecting livestock from pests and, and probably in the future making other manipulations that will be useful as well. Are, are, there, are there risks in terms of changing genes that we're putting out into the agricultural world and the biological world? Well, I think we always have to be careful, you know, thoughtful about how, how we're manipulating animals that we're using in, our, in the environment. Uh, animal welfare, of course, is an issue, but also thinking about uh, the human health risks that might come along with that. And what about, so let's move on now, because obviously this is a genetic manipulation. So what about the possibility of genetic diseases? So what are some of the genetic diseases that come to mind that most readily lend themselves to this type of technology? Well, there are a number of human diseases that are known to be caused by a single genetic mutation, a single gene that has gone awry. And so these are, I think, the first targets for something like CRISPR, because we can imagine how to alter those individual genes now to have a, an impact on a patient's health. So some of those would be in terms of... Well, sickle cell disease is, uh, is an obvious one. Uh, muscular dystrophy is another. Cystic fibrosis, these are all uh, examples. Huntington's disease is a neurological disorder. And there's a large number of relatively rare um, genetic diseases that result from individual changes that happen sporadically that right now we really don't have any anything to offer patients. And in the future, hopefully, we will have a tool that can actually correct those disease-causing mutations. So single gene disorders being prevalent. Right. Dota, I mean, we all remember from struggling through university biochemistry that people have sickle cell where they don't have both genes, where they have one gene, it provides some protection against malaria. Correct. So yeah. how do we make sure we understand the genetic conditions well enough to know when to intervene? Well, I think we have to take it step by step. So it's great to start with diseases like sickle cell that are fairly well understood. But as you point out, you know, I think we have to be cautious because genes typically don't have a single role in our health. They have, you know, they interact with lots of other genes. So we do need to be thoughtful about how we manipulate them. So what about, so say you've got a gene, you've got a patient population, and you have a manipulation. So what are the ways that, how do we introduce that into human patients who we're trying to treat? What are, the, what are the ways that we can go about doing that in terms of doing it in vivo, ex vivo, and what that means? Right, well, there's really two ways. I think it's shown on this slide here where, where you can introduce the uh, gene editing molecules in cells that are taken out of a patient. So it's done ex vivo outside the body and the edited cells are then replaced. And that would be, for example, to treat sickle cell disease. That's how it would be done. Or we can do it in vivo where you use something like a virus to deliver the gene editors. And then the virus can hone into the tissue where the editing is needed. Any thoughts on whether one of those will be particularly more effective or efficient, or is it going to depend on different diseases? Well, today, you know, we're at a point where the ex vivo type of delivery is really, I think, almost there. It's really a feasible thing to actually do, and there are trials, clinical trials, that are on deck to move ahead using that kind of strategy. In vivo delivery, however, as you can imagine, it's a lot harder and to be sure that it's done right and safely. So I think that's still a ways off. But in the end, you know, that's going to be obviously the more powerful way to be able to do uh, gene editing. So, but most 
traits that we deal with in, you know, in medical centers are not monogenic, they're polygenic. They're very, very complicated. I mean, some of the most common things we deal with are things like HIV and all sorts of different forms of cancer. So how can you take an approach like this and think about how you target it for more complex polygenic conditions like that? Well, for something like cancer, I think the, the uh, excitement there is about being able to manipulate the immune system. Imagine we could edit immune cells so that they are they have the right uh, properties so that they can target tumors. I think that would be a very exciting way to treat cancer. And then for, uh, for HIV infection, there's the potential to, rather than targeting the virus itself, actually target the molecule that is necessary on T cells, the immune cells that get infected by HIV, so that HIV can't get in. So there's been lots and lots of speculation about what CRISPR technology maybe can do, what are prospects for the future. So if we're going to break things down into, yeah, I think this is probably going to happen relatively soon. Yeah, you know, it's going to take a lot more work, but this is realistic, or this is kind of Harry Potter fantasy world, probably never going to happen. So let's just run through a few. So how about life? So the thought that humans, have, most humans, we all think I have, we have an age span. I take care of a lot of patients in their 80s and 90s, and I've kind of figured I'm okay with the 80s, 90s, I'm not so sure. But lobsters supposedly don't age like humans. They're resistant to a lot of the aging effects. So are you going to be able to help me want to, want to hit my 90s? <laughs> well, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think uh, you know, the potential for gene editing to be impactful in terms of quality of life I think that that potential is high. Whether it, you know, I, I get asked regularly, can can gene editing extend the length of my life? And uh, I think we're a lot farther from that. So, but so how when you look think about it and you say, okay, how's how is it going to improve the quality of life of somebody who's 50 in the third row now, where we, they've got an average life expectancy of 35 more years? Well, I would say uh, I think there's potential to improve quality of life by protecting us from uh, from infections uh, by, again, back to the cancer example, being able to provide a way of tuning up the immune system so that it's more effective at fighting cancer. So I would say those are probably the things that I think are not you know, they're not here today, but they're not completely science fiction either. But being able to, you know, tweak a gene or two and add another uh, 50 years, I think that's that's probably sci-fi. What about uh, designer babies? So not fixing medical problems or genetically predisposed conditions, but, you know, I want my kid smarter. I want my kid taller. I want my kid to be able to jump like Zion Williamson. I mean, so what about designer babies? Well, you know, the thing about designer babies is that for the traits like the ones that you mentioned, uh, they're, they're all, they're all going to be things that result from most likely, you know, hundreds or thousands of genes. And um, we don't, for the most part, know what those are. So I think the reality of being able to do that kind of manipulation in human embryos is quite a ways off. And what about uh, soldiers? So improving memory, improving endurance, uh, just being used for purposes of things like building armies or making your armies more efficient. Again, I, I think that's, that's uh, you know, in the future maybe, but it's certainly not uh, coming anytime soon. There are easier ways to 
improve your armies than using CRISPR right now. That's, that's, that's probably a relief to all of us. What about the concept of uh, either uh, soldiers? So improving memory, improving endurance, uh, just being used for purposes of things like building armies or making your armies more efficient. Again, I, I think that's, that's uh, you know, in the future, maybe, but it's certainly not uh, coming anytime soon. There are easier ways to improve your armies than using CRISPR right now. That's, that's, that's probably a relief <laughs> to all of us. What about the concept of uh, either maintaining very endangered species, improving on their viability, or even the possibility of rejuvenating a species that's been lost? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea. I mean, there's a number of people I know in academic you know, research who are interested in using CRISPR to bring back extinct uh, species. They're not talking about bringing back uh, velociraptors, by the way, but, uh, but, but thinking about bringing back things like the carrier pigeon, you know, which isn't that different genetically from birds that are alive now and where you could have the p potential to rebuild genomes for organisms that have gone extinct in recent times. So uh, help us understand the concept and, and what the term means of a gene drive. So if you talk about trying to find a way to, for instance, uh, eradicate malaria, how would you go about that and what does that gene drive term mean? Well, you know, the idea of a gene drive has actually been around for quite a while. I can remember uh, 30 years ago or so when I was in graduate school, people talking about the possibility of using technology to drive a genetic trait through a population quickly, faster than it would ever happen by Mendelian inheritance. But in those days, it was it really was a fantasy. We didn't have any way of actually doing that. And the thing about CRISPR is that this this provides the, the means of doing that, because if you, if you couple a trait, a gene that you're interested in uh, introducing across a population to the, uh, the tool that does the insertion, then you, you have a way to introduce it very quickly and very broadly across a population of organisms that are reproducing rapidly, such as mosquitoes. And so this has attracted a lot of attention because we now have a tool that could do things like maybe uh, genetically prevent mosquitoes from spreading uh, diseases through human populations. Which, recognizing that obviously one of the greatest vectors worldwide of disease, that would be a, a huge a accomplishment. Tremendous accomplishment, yeah. In terms of global health. Right. Yeah. So let's move, let's talk a little bit about how you got to where you are now. So, as mentioned before, so 2012, you and Professor Charpentier came up with this realization that bacteria were using this strategy. So, but, but after that discovery, and along the way, there were times when you were haunted by it a little bit. And so you wrote a, an article in Nature in 2015 called My Whirlwind Year. And I'll just quote, you said, by the spring of 2014, I was regularly lying awake at night wondering whether I could justifiably stay out of an ethical storm that was brewing around a technology that I had helped to create. So talk about what that was like initially, as well as you know, scientists, PhDs, even physicians with all our interactions, we're not really trained for, for that kind of limelight. So maybe you could address both of those issues a little bit. 
Yeah, I think, you know, many people, me included, go into science partly because we're not going to be in the limelight, you know, so we can sort of work away in our laboratories and work with students, but but really not uh, not receive public attention for that, for the most part. And, uh, and so for me, going through this kind of realization that, you know, this technology was going to be uh, impactful not only in, in research labs, but also for the kinds of applications that we're discussing here and, and potentially for things that, you know, might really have ethical issues and challenges such as uh, human embryo editing. So in uh, 2014, early in 2014, I was sitting in my office at Berkeley. I got a call from a reporter who said, have you seen uh, the latest um, paper out in the journal Cell, which is one of the top science journals in our field? And I said, no. And he, he said, well, it's from a group that has used CRISPR in monkey embryos and has created uh, CRISPR-edited monkeys, and they seem to be fine. They just have a, you know, they have one gene tweaked. And and I think it was that, that event, that article, reading that paper, that made me realize, oh my gosh, I mean, if people are doing this already in monkeys, um, there's no reason to think that somebody won't try to do it in human embryos. And that's when I started uh, thinking about this a lot and uh, really struggling with the the you know debate within myself about you know do I re- do I really want to get involved in this kind of discussion? No, I don't. But I didn't really feel that it would be responsible not to. So how do you make that day to day just cognitive shift from being you know an an, an eminent uh, scientist who is really focusing on on one little part of the uh, of the plant kingdom and animal kingdom, and then all of a sudden you're looking at at, at global topics of massive ethical proportions. I mean, how do you make peace with that? Well, the first thing I did was I I had founded an organization that was kind of virtual at the time called the Innovative Genomics Institute at Berkeley and UCSF. And um, so through that organization, we convened a meeting that was held in the early part of, I think it was January of 2015, with scientists, uh, some of whom had been involved in the 1970s discussions around the ethics of molecular cloning. And uh, we had a conversation for a day about human genome editing and human germline editing in which we debated, you know, is it, would it be right for anyone to do that? And if they did, you know, what would the issues be? And the upshot of that was that I think everybody felt that, you know, this was a very important topic that needed to be brought to the public attention. So we wrote a perspective that was published in April of that year in science, very, very shortly before the first publication in a scientific journal of human uh, germline editing in human embryos that was published in a, in a, you know, in a science paper using, using CRISPR. And, um, and then you know what happened next, which is that, you know, there were a series of meetings that were held by different groups, including uh, the National Academies, a report that was issued in the spring of 2017, and these all were essentially calling for moratoria on any clinical use of CRISPR in human embryos, meaning any use to implant uh, an edited embryo for the purpose of creating a pregnancy. And yet, uh, that clearly didn't stop Ajunkwe from his work. So we'll, yeah. have, we'll have, fortunately, plenty of time to talk about that a little more with right. other, other other guests in a bit. So you've been at some of the most amazing academic hotspots in the country, Harvard, Yale, Berkeley, but you actually, it all started for you in Hawaii, right? So you grew up on the big island in one of the most beautiful places in the world, unbelievable biological diversity. So how did that impact you as you were moving forward in your career and then also with this discovery? 
Well, I grew up in a very rainy part of Hawaii, a town called Hilo. It's not what people usually think of when they think of uh, sunny beaches and all that. It was we had a very rainy, uh, <laughs> very rainy town, and I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't think too much about it at the time, but I, I was really influenced by the native environment there, and I was fascinated by all of the plants and animals that I encountered growing up that had clearly evolved to adapt to that island environment. It, you know, it helped that I had moved there when I was seven, so I had, you know, lived in Michigan before that, so kind of a big change between Michigan and Hawaii. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't think about DNA in those days, but I, I definitely wondered about the chemistry. I, I always, you know, I had a great chemistry teacher in high school, and so I started to wonder about the chemistry of these plants and animals and um, what had to be different to allow them to adapt to those environments. So I, I really credit that with my early interest in biochemistry. So in, in an environment like that, I mean, you see the natural diversity of animal plant life in particular that's there. So when you think about that now and you think about, okay, how much do we understand how evolution came about to generate that world and how do we make decisions about, okay, now we have the possibility to manipulate that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of profound, you know, and I think that, but I guess it's important to point out to everyone here that this isn't something that happened suddenly in a way, you know, I mean, I think scientists have been thinking about manipulating DNA and manipulating uh, the code of life for, for a very long time. And certainly in agriculture, you can go back millennia, right? People, plant breeders have been working for a long time. They didn't necessarily know they were manipulating DNA, but that's exactly what they were doing. Um, more recently, of course, there have been technologies previous to CRISPR that gave scientists tools to manipulate DNA. The challenge was that these tools, although very effective and they got a lot of people excited, they were hard enough to use that most labs didn't have access. And that's really what CRISPR does. It brings a powerful technology to a point where it's, you know, it's just, uh, it's democratizing because it's available to people. You don't have to have particular expertise uh, to use it and it's, it's uh, inexpensive and it works well. So uh, you've written about how you've had some pretty crazy dreams along the way when you realized the power of this technique, dreaming that you met Hitler, dreaming that you were inundated by a tsunami. So obviously you're thinking about the fact that there's incredible potential, but also the other side of this a little bit. So talk a little bit about that aspect. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I've written about this dream I had about Hitler. It was, you know, I was walking into a, into a dark room with a figure kind of silhouetted and a colleague of mine said, I want to, I want to introduce you to someone and, and, and they want to learn about CRISPR from you. And the person turned around and as they turned around, I realized that it was Hitler. And he had sort of a pig face. It was almost like this horror of, of someone who maybe had already been sort of CRISPR'd, you know? And um, it was it was just, uh, it was really, it sounds funny now, but it was it was a, one of those terrifying, you know, wake up sweating kind of, kind of dreams. And I think for me, it really stuck out in my mind because it, um, it, it really highlighted, uh, you know, it sort of brought to a head a lot of the thoughts I had had about my responsibility and made me think, yeah, I really need to start um, publicizing this. People need to know about this technology and they need to think about how we're going to be responsible using it. So before we move on to that a lot more and particularly talking about the, uh, the Chinese children and things. So you know, you've 
been involved in a fairly extensive, and not just you, because we all work for universities, and universities have a lot of the intellectual property rights to any work we do in those universities. So obviously you're at Berkeley, it's a very strong state school. This is a this is a, an amazing technology, and a lot of people are looking saying, okay, a technology like this is gonna form big companies, there's a lot of intellectual property here. So I don't really wanna get into the the whole issue of who's, who's on what side with all this, because it's all written plenty of places people can find it. But it kind of, there's a fundamental conflict there because as a scientist, you're going and you're trying to make discoveries and you want to share those discoveries in a way that makes the world better, the academic community stronger, everybody's knowledge. By all of us sharing, we all grow and we all come up with ideas off of each other. And yet on the other side, you've got patents and potential profits and huge amounts of money. I mean, when I first came to Columbia, the medical school was being supported by a single patent over many, many years. It was generating so much royalties. And so, so I mean, how do you balance that in terms of saying, look, this is my obligation to share scientifically, but at the same time, okay, now maybe somebody's going to scoop me. So what do you do with that? Well, it gets down to, you know, why do we have patents, right? Why, why do we have a patent system? And, um, you know, if you'd asked me that question a few years ago, I would have said, I don't know. <laughs> but, um, you know, the purpose of patents is really to provide protection for companies that are going to invent investors, you know, who are going to invest a lot of money in products that will take potentially years to come to market, such as therapeutics is a, is a great example where it might take, you know, it might take 10 years to develop a therapeutic. And so the company wants to know that they've got some protection around that. So when they bring their drug to market, they can actually recoup money from what was invested and, and make a profit. And uh, so that's the purpose of patents. I think, you know, the challenge for patent, the patent system with something like CRISPR, and this, you know, CRISPR is not unique in this way, right? It's true for any technology that's kind of broadly enabling is that on the one hand, as you said, you know, you want to, you want to provide protection for those companies because you want, you know, you want uh, those companies to get involved in commercializing the actual application of the technology. But on the flip side, you want to make sure that the tech technology is widely available and in as many hands as possible so that it can be made better and that it can be used to do all sorts of, of new things. And I think, you know, the good thing about the university uh, system right now is that, you know, the, the universities really do make these technologies available to researchers, and that's always been true. So right now, even though, yes, there's a patent dispute going on and, and uh, with CRISPR, the good news is that it hasn't, I don't think, really impinged on anybody's ability to use the technology. Certainly for academics, they can get it uh, very easily from a nonprofit organization called AdGene, and that's been one of the reasons why it's taken off the way it has. And that was a clip of Jennifer Doudner, co-founder of the CRISPR-Cas9. And that was taken from the World Science Festival back in 2019. So once you hear everything she talks about and you coincide this with the current mRNA vaccine that is out here, the ribonucleic acid, that's what... RNA means and she explains how the CRISPR-Cas9 has attached to the RNA that allows it to now cut the DNA once it attaches to that strand because the DNA has two strands and the RNA has one single strand that could be genetically altered and coded 
number of his name. Because I want you to I want you to hear what the Bible says as far as in uh, Revelations chapter 13. Listen to listen to what it says and, and, and understand what I'm saying to you. And from hearing CRISPR and hearing what Jennifer said through her dreams that God gave her. God gave her these these nightmares. They weren't dreams. They were nightmares to tell her, look, this is what's going to happen. She said that Adolf Hitler had a pig face like it looked like it was crispered already up. So so what does that tell you? But let me let me let me read from what the 13th chapter, verse 17. So you'll understand the number of his name. Listen. Okay, I'm going to go back first. I'm going to go back to 16 because it says, and he causes all both small and great rich and poor, free and bond to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads and that no man might buy or sell save he had the mark or the number of the beast or the number of his name. And then it says on uh, verse 18, here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast for it is the number of a man. And his number is six hundred three score six 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 six. Man making himself God because now you're genetically altering all of. Remember the Bible says in in uh, Genesis chapter six that all flesh was corrupt, even the birds and the animals. Now, now, if you go into a grocery store today, you will see in the sections of where the vegetables and fruits are, you'll start to see they have seedless grapes, seedless watermelons, seedless oranges, seedless lemons, seedless. These are all, these are, 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 are foundational things from what she spoke about in CRISPR. These are genetically altered, non-nutritional they have no nutritional value because remember, God said after its seed, you must eat seed after its kind. Remember in Genesis uh, chapter one, plant bearing seed after its kind. That's what he said in the Bible. Re seed yielding fruit after its kind. That's what he said. Remember, um, um. When he brought forth the food, I mean, the fruits and the, the grass and all the herb yielding seeds, he said after its kind, after itself. We're, see, the thing is, you have to understand that 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 within the seed, there's more than enough. We don't need no gene editing programs. God made it perfect because he said after it was all done, it was very good. But now she's talking about they're going to have hornless cattle hornless this hornless that and they already got seedless watermelons see genetically engineered corn genetically engineered tomatoes genetically homegrown housegrown genetically engineered bell peppers and 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 all man it's all out here now the whole genetic engineering of human genome is here and it's been here and people don't know. So I'm bringing it to the forefront by letting you see who are the founders behind all of this and why God gave them these nightmares. Because God always warns a person before destruction comes. Remember when he sent Jonah down to Nineveh to warn the people 
40 days he preached that the destruction of these people, if they don't turn from their sins, God will destroy this place because of the wickedness. And they went down in sackcloth and ashes and repented. And God spared the city of Nineveh because of the preaching of Jonah. The same thing that I'm doing today. I'm preaching against all of the stuff that they're doing out here and telling people to wake up because it's not what you think. These folks are sinister. They're not going to tell you what they're putting in you. They're not going to tell you because they have everybody that told folks that what was in the, the nanoparticles that are in the vaccine. I was saying all of this stuff back in 20, uh, right when they caught, right when they brought it out. Remember, because it took like six to eight months for them to bring out this new mRNA messenger vaccine. And I was saying, well, why won't they tell the folks what's in it? So I, you know, found out what was in it and everything. And I, I, I made a video and I got flagged misinformation i was like wait a minute I, <laughs> which was crazy because i i i i took the source of what i got my information from on the next time because i i was i was uh suspended for a week so once i was able to put my stuff back on because you know uh emailing youtube about you know your your status or whatever they get back to you when they want to so when i kept my when i un got off my suspension i put the information where I received it from on there. And guess what they said? And this was from leading doctors and stuff. They said that was inf misinformation and this was public records. So I was like, wait a minute, this is for everybody. So I, you know, if you, like I said, they do what they want to do. They ain't return all this other stuff. So I just sent the email saying that God's going to show the truth and God's going to be able to, you know, after that third I got suspended for two weeks after that uh, third strike because they give you a warning, then you get suspended for uh, your second strike. You get suspended for uh, a week and then two weeks and then you get deplatformed. So that second strike after I sent, I put up my next video, I put up the information just like I'm letting you hear Jennifer talk about it instead of me telling you about CRISPR and telling you that it's they're editing genomes and telling you that that this is what's been happening I mean, long ago from all, because I know people been going to the uh, uh, grocery stores and seeing waters, uh, seedless watermelons and seedless grapes and seedless this and seedless that. And, you know, seeing that this stuff is hybrid and, you know, telling you uh, about the, the plants that they're eating. She talking about all of this, you know, they, they once they become seedless and all of this CRISPR takes place, they become they have no nutritional value. Don't believe what they say. Because they, they can't produce seed after its kind. It's a hybrid. You can't produce seed. And if you do produce produce seed after its kind, it won't, it's no, it has no nutrition. Once you take out them DNAs, once you remove all of that stuff, you are no longer, it's no longer God's creation, is what I'm saying. That's why it's called manipulation. And they manipulate these genes and they manipulate. That's what the devil does. He manipulate God's creation and it's no longer God's creation when it's manipulated. And I've been telling folks that the manipulation has come in the form of these vaccines because it manipulates that which God created. So I've been saying all of this and I just wanted to have a foundation of what, you know, why I'm saying all of this is because all of the research that I've done and you see what I've, what you just uncovered. She told you about the tsunami. Tsunami uh, uh, dream she had of drowning, you know, and, and and the Adolf Hitler dream that he looked like a pig and it looked like he had already been crispered. That's what she said. I let y'all hear it. 
I mean, it was a long thing, but I wanted to give a foundation so you'll know where she came from and know how she started and know the ins and outs of CRISPR so you can get it from the horse's mouth, the co-founder of it. You understand? So I brought it all to your um, your uh, awareness so you, now that you can now have a better idea of making decisions going forward because this stuff is real. This is real, man. They're, they're doing, this is a sinister plan to, to taint what God created because all flesh has to be corrupted. And then the son of man will return because all of, uh, once all of the, the, the gospel is being preached, because I'm preaching the gospel right now, telling you what's going on so that you can turn from your wicked ways and follow them behind these evil folks and turn to, to Christ who died for us, gave his life, that we may have right standing with God. You understand? So this is this is what I'm telling folks. And I admirably beg folks, man, don't do what they tell you. Because it's right before your eyes. These are set, These people have been bought and paid by Satan himself. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is a manipulator. He is a deceiver. And he has been deceiving people. So I just wanted to bring it to the people's understanding with this information of CRISPR and Jennifer Doudna and how all of this stuff and how God warned her. And I wanted to let you hear about the guy who got the pig implants. And, and, and I'm sure God visiting him. Told him don't do it because once he did it and it, and people think that because he was uh, alive for the I think two or three months that it, it it held up they feel like okay he had a thing they can make it better and so we can get it done and people are gonna start lining up because they said over a hundred and ten thousand people per year need a heart transplant. And 6,000 people died just waiting for heart transplants. So they got to understand that they're going to be trying all of this stuff. People are going to be using this stuff. And God don't want you to use this stuff. He wants you to understand that you must eat right. You must live right. You must do things right. And understand if they told you you got six months to live, that look, get yourself right with Christ. Meet him. Don't. Don't put yourself in the hellish position by putting something that is not of God. You will no longer be right in the eyes of God. Your name will be etched out of the Lamb's book of life when you are a hybrid individual. You are no longer God's creation. When your body is manipulated, that's why he said uh, Noah was the only righteous and pure. He was talking about the purity of Noah. Noah flesh was not tainted. He didn't, he didn't partake in all of the stuff that was going on in those days, which was gene manipulation, putting, uh, splicing genomes and all. They've been doing this. Nothing is new under the sun, Solomon says. All is vanity, chasing of the wind. The things that you see now were before. That's what he said. There's nothing new under the sun. That which was here before is here now. There's no new, there's no such thing as a new pair of jeans. It was taken from something in the past and just tweaked a little bit. And they say, we got this new product. No, all of the stuff you see is the same things that happen over and over and over. That's why I wouldn't be surprised if you'll see, they might come out with 
dinosaur exhibits where they have real dinosaurs that they use CRISPR for. She said it on there that they wouldn't do it, but they already did it with the monkeys. And then if if I would have kept playing the whole festival, because I listened to this thing, man, what? I think two years ago I was listening about her. But anyway, um, she they talk about how a guy in China edited two twin babies. They, she, he edited gene, babies. <laughs> so, so oh, man, I just want people to know the truth, man, so they, they can make their own decisions and make the correct decisions and follow behind Christ, man, because he is soon to come. And I, like I said, I'm putting out videos after video. I don't care if I, if only if I can get one person, man, the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. You understand? So I just want one, man. That's all I always want to inform people, but I just want one person to give their life. Or two, three, four, whoever. But all I'm looking for is one. To just give your life to Christ. Ask him to come into your heart. Forgive anybody who ever done any wrong against you. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. You understand? Go down. Go to your nearest synagogue which we consider the church. You are the church now that you've accepted Christ. Go to a synagogue and get baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sin and then receive the Holy Spirit who seals you into the day that Jesus returns. And he'll give you the idea of how to operate and move in this treacherous and dark and evil world. He'll show you how to bring your light and let your light shine in the darkness so that the darkness can understand the truth. If it's uh, being allowed to understand that we must submit our will. So that's all I got, beloved. Just listen to these things over and over and over again and know that I've come in love in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, like I said, we always do here at Truth Revealed. If you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. But if you teach a man how to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. Thank you so much for returning to Truth Revealed and listening to these episodes and always supporting our channel. We appreciate and we extend our love right back to you, beloved. Take care and always know that Christ loves you. Amen. Amen.